0: Welcome to the Dead Authors Society. Frank Herbert, February 11th, 1986. Rest in peace. Children of Dune, chapter 19. And Faradn reminded himself a Mintat thinks like this. It gave the thought an added depth. Mintats made mistakes, but not often. Having come to this conclusion, Roden almost summoned his aides to have them send the Lady Jessica away with Idaho. He poised himself on the point of acting. Withdrew. But of those people and the Bene Gesserit witch remained counters of unknown domination in this game of power. Idaho must be sent back because that would certainly stir up troubles on Arrakis. Jessica must be kept here drained of her strange knowledge to benefit House Carino. Farad knew it was a subtle and deadly game he played, but he had prepared himself for this possibility over the years, ever since he'd realized that he was more intelligent, more sensitive than those around him. It had been a frightening discovery for a child, and he knew the library had been his refuge as well as his teacher. Doubts ate him now though, he wondered if he was quite up to this game. He'd alienated his mother, lost her counsel, but her decisions had always been dangerous to him. Tigers. Their training had been an atrocity and their use had been stupidity. How easy they were to trace. She should be thankful to suffer nothing more than banishment. Lady Jessica's advice had fitted his needs with a lovely precision there. She must be made to divulge the way of that Atreides thinking. His doubts began to fade away. He thought of his Sadekar, once more growing tough and resilient through the rigorous training and the denial of luxury which he commanded, his Sadekar legions remained small, but once they were a man-to-man match for the Fremen. That served little purpose as long as the limits imposed by the Treaty of Arrakeen governed the relative size of the forces. Fremen could overwhelm him by their numbers, unless they were tied up and weakened by civil war. It was too soon for a battle of Sadakar against Fremen. He needed time. He needed new allies from among the discontented House's major and the newly powerful from the House's minor. He needed access to Chong financing. He needed time for his Sadaka to grow stronger and the Fremen to grow weaker. Again Faraddon looked at the screen which revealed the patient Gula. Why did Idaho want to see the Lady Jessica this time? He would know that they were spied upon, that every word, every gesture would be recorded and analyzed. Why? Varadhan glanced away from the screen to the ledge beside his control console. In the pale electronic light, he could make out the spools which contained the latest reports from Arrakis. His spies were thorough, he had to give them credit. There was much to give him hope and pleasure in those reports. He closed his eyes, and the high points of those reports passed through his mind in the oddly editorial form to which he'd reduced the spools for his own uses. As the planet is made fertile, Fremen are freed of land pressure and their new communities lose their traditional Siege stronghold character. From infancy, in the new Siege culture, the Fremen was taught by the Rhoda. Like the knowledge of your own being, the siege forms a firm base from which you move out into the world and into the universe. The traditional fremen says, look too massive. Meaning that the master science is the law, but the new social structure is loosening those old legal restrictions. Discipline grows lax. The new Fremen leaders know only their low catechism of ancestry plus the history which is camouflaged in the myth structure of their songs. People of the new communities are more volatile, more open. They quarrel more often and are less responsive to authority. The old Siege folk are more disciplined, more inclined to group actions, and they tend to work harder are more careful of their resources. The old folk still believe that the orderly society is the fulfillment of the individual. The young grow away from this belief. Those remnants of the older culture which remain look at the young and say, the death wind has etched away their past. Varadin liked the pointedness of his own summary. The new diversity on Arrakis could only bring violence. He had the essential concepts firmly etched into the spools. The religion of Maudib is based firmly in the old fremen siege cultural tradition, while the new culture moves farther and farther from those disciplines. Not for the first time, Faradon asked himself why Tychonik had embraced that religion. Tychonik behaved oddly in his new morality. He seemed utterly sincere, but carried along as though against his will. Tychonik was like one who had stepped into the whirlwind, detested, and had been caught up by forces beyond his control. Tychonik's conversion annoyed for Radin by its characterless completeness. It was a reversion to very old Sadakar ways. He warned that the young Fremen might yet revert. In a similar way, that the inborn, ingrained traditions would prevail. Once more, Voradin thought about those report spools. They told of a disquieting thing: persistence of a cultural remnant from the most ancient Fremen times—the water of conception, the amniotic fluid—the newborn was saved at birth distilled into the first water fed to that child. The traditional form required a godmother to serve the water, saying, Here is the water of thy conception. Even the young Fremen still followed this tradition with their own newborn. The water of thy conception. Faradn found himself revolted by the idea of drinking water, Distilled from the amniotic fluid which had borne him. And he thought about the surviving twin, Ganema, her mother dead when she'd taken that strange water. She reflected later upon that odd link with her past. Probably not. She'd been raised Fremen. What was natural and acceptable to Fremen had been natural and acceptable to her. Momentarily, Faradon regretted the death of Leto II. It would have been interesting to discuss this point with him. Perhaps an opportunity would come to discuss it with Ganema. Why did Idaho cut his wrists? The question persisted every time he glanced at the spy screen. Again, doubts assailed Faradon. He longed for the ability to sink into the mysterious spice trance as Paul Madib had done, there to seek out the future and know the answers to his questions. No matter how much spice he ingested though, his ordinary awareness persisted in its singular flow of now, reflecting a universe of uncertainties. The spy screen showed a servant opening the Lady Jessica's door. The woman beckoned Idaho, who arose from the bench and went through the door. The servant would file a complete report later, but Faradden his curiosity once more fully aroused, touched another switch on his console, watched as Idaho entered the sitting room of the Lady Jessica's quarters. How calm and contained the Mentad appeared, and how fathomless were his gula eyes. Above all else, the Mentad must be a generalist, not a specialist. It is wise to have decisions of great moment monitored by generalists. Experts and specialists lead you quickly into chaos. They are a source of useless nitpicking, the ferocious quibble over a comma. The Mintat Generalist, on the other hand, should bring to decision-making a healthy common sense. He must not cut himself off from the broad sweep of what is happening in his universe. He must remain capable of saying, There's no real mystery about this at the moment. This is what we want now. May prove wrong later, but we'll correct that when we come to it. The Mentat Generalist must understand that anything which we can identify as our universe is merely part of a larger phenomena. But the expert looks backward, he looks into the narrow standards of his own speciality. The Generalist looks outward. He looks for living principles, knowing full well that such principles change that they develop. It is to the characteristics of change itself that the mental generalist must look. There can be no permanent catalogue of such change, no handbook or manual. You must look at it with as few preconceptions as possible, asking yourself, Now what is this thing doing? Mentat Handbook. It was the day of the Quisat Zadarek, the first holy day of those who followed Maudib. It recognized the deified Paul Atreides as that person who was everywhere simultaneously, the male Bene Gesserit who mingled both male and female ancestry in an inseparable power to become the one with all. The Faithful called this day a Yil, the Sacrifice, to commemorate the death which made his presence real in all places. The Preacher chose the early morning of this day to appear once more in the plaza of Olia's Temple, defying the order for his arrest which everyone knew had been issued. A delicate truce prevailed between Alia's priesthood and those desert tribes which had rebelled. The presence of this truce could be felt as a tangible thing which moved everyone in Iraqin with uneasiness. The preacher did not dispel that mood. It was the 28th day of official mourning for Maudib's son, six days following the memorial rite at Old Pass, which had been delayed by the rebellion. Even the fighting had not stopped the Hajj, though. The preacher knew the plaza would be heavily thronged on this day. Most pilgrims tried to time their stay on Arrakis to cross Ayil, To feel then the holy presence of the Quisatz Zederec on his day. The preacher entered the plaza at first light, finding the place already thronging with the faithful. He kept a hand lightly on the shoulder of his young guide, sensing the cynical pride in the lad's walk. Now, when the preacher approached, people noticed every nuance of his behavior. Such attention was not entirely distasteful to the young guide. The preacher merely accepted it as a necessity. Taking his stance on the third of the temple steps, the preacher waited for the hush to come. When silence had spread like a wave through the throng, And the hurrying of footsteps of others come to listen could be heard at the plaza's limits. He cleared his throat. It was still morning cold around him, and lights had not yet come down into the plaza from the building tops. He felt the gray hush of the great square, and he began to speak. I have come to give homage and to preach in the memory of Leto Atreides II. He said, calling out in that strong voice so reminiscent of a wormsman from the desert. I do it in compassion for all who suffer. I say to you what the dead Leto has learned, that tomorrow has not yet happened and may never happen. This moment here is the only observable time and place for us in our universe. I tell you to savor this moment and understand what it teaches. I tell you to learn that a government's growth and its death are apparent in the growth and death of its citizens. Disturbed murmur passed through the plaza. he mocked the death of Leto II. They wondered if Free guards would rush out now and arrest the preacher. Alia knew there would be no such interruption of the preacher. It was her order that he be left unmolested on this day. She disguised herself in a good still suit with a moisture mask to conceal her nose and mouth. And a common hooded robe to hide her hair. She stood in the second row beneath the preacher, watching him carefully. Was this Paul? The years might have changed him thus, and he had always been superb with voice, a fact which made it difficult to identify him by his speech. Still this preacher made his voice do what he wanted. Paul could not have done it better. She felt that she had to know his identity before she could act against him. How his words dazzled her. She sensed no irony in the preacher's statement. He was using the seductive attraction of definite sentences uttered with a driving sincerity. People might stumble only momentarily at his meanings. Realizing that he had meant them to stumble, teaching them in this fashion, indeed, he picked up the crowd's response, saying, "'Irony often masks the inability to think beyond one's assumptions. "'I am not being ironic. Ganema has said to you that the blood of her brother cannot be washed off. "'I concur.' It will be said that Leto has gone where his father went, has done what his father did. Audiv's church says he chose in behalf of his own humanity, a course which might appear absurd and foolhardy, but which history will validate. That history is being rewritten even now. I say to you, that there is another lesson to be learned from these lives and their endings." Alia, alert to every nuance, asked herself why the preacher said endings instead of deaths. Was he saying that one or both were not truly dead? How could that be? The truth Sarah had confirmed Ganema's story. What was this preacher doing then? Was he making a statement of myth or reality? Note this other lesson well. The preacher thundered, lifting his arms. If you would possess your humanity, let go of the universe. He lowered his arms, pointed his empty sockets directly at Alia. He seemed to be speaking intimately to her. An action so obvious that several around her turned to peer, inquiringly, in her direction. Alia shivered at the power in him. This could be Paul. It could. But I realize that humans cannot bear very much reality. He said. Most lives are a flight from selfhood. Most prefer the truths of the stable. You stick your heads into the stanchions and munch contentedly until you die. Others use you for their purposes. Not once do you live outside the stable to lift your head and be your own creature. Maudie came to tell you about that. Without understanding his message, you cannot revere him. Some in the throng, possibly a priest in disguise, could stand no more. His hoarse male voice was lifted in a shout. You don't live the life of Maudib. How dare you tell others how they must revere him? Because he's dead. The preacher bellowed. Alia turned to see who had challenged the preacher. The man remained hidden from her, but his voice came over the intervening heads in another shout. If you believe him truly dead, then you are alone from this time forward." Surely it was a priest, Alia thought, but she failed to recognize the voice. "'I come only to ask a simple question,' the preacher said. "'Is Maudib's death to be followed by the moral suicide of all men?' Is that the inevitable aftermath of a messiah? Then you admit him, messiah. The voice from the crowd shouted. Why not, since I'm the prophet of his times? The preacher asked. There was such a calm assurance in his tone and manner that even his challenger fell silent. The crowd responded with a disturbed murmur, a low animal sound. Yes. The preacher repeated, I am the prophet of these times. Alia concentrated on him, detected the subtle inflections of voice. He'd certainly controlled the crowd. Was he being a trained? Was this another ploy? The Missionaria Protectiva? Not Paul at all, but just another part of the endless power game. I articulate the myth and the dream. The preacher shouted. I am the physician who delivers the child and announces that the child is born. Yet, I come to you at a time of death. Does that not disturb you? It should shake your souls." Even as she felt anger at his words, Alia understood the pointed way of his speech. With others, she found herself edging closer up the steps, routing toward this tall man in desert garb. His young guide caught her attention, how bright-eyed and saucy the lad appeared. Would Maldive employ such a cynical youth? I mean to disturb you. The preacher shouted. It is my intention. I come here to combat the fraud and illusion of your conventional, institutionalized religion. As with all such religions, your institution moves toward cowardice. It moves toward mediocrity, inertia, and self-satisfaction. Angry murmurs began to arise in the center of the throng. Alia felt the tensions and gloatingly wondered if there might not be a riot. Could the preacher handle these tensions? If not, he could die right here. That priest who challenged me. The preacher called, pointing into the crowd. He knows, Alia thought. A thrill ran through her, almost sexual in its undertones. This preacher played a dangerous game, but he played it consummately. You, priest, and your mufti called, You are a Champlain to the self-satisfied. I come not to challenge Maudib, but to challenge you. Is your religion real when it costs you nothing and carries no risk? Is your religion real when you fatten upon it? Is your religion real when you commit atrocities in its name? Whence comes your downward degeneration from the original revelation? Answer me, priest!" But the challenger remained silent. Nalia noted that the crowd once more was listening with avid submission to the preacher's every word. By attacking the priesthood, he had their sympathy. And if her spies were correct, most of the pilgrims and Fremen on Arrakis believed this man was Maudib. The son of Maudib risked. The preacher shouted, and Alia heard tears in his voice. Maudib risked. They paid their price. And what did Maudib achieve? A religion which is doing away with him. How different those words if they come from Paul himself, Alia thought. I must find out." She moved closer up the steps, and others moved with her. She pressed through the throng, until she could almost reach out and touch this mysterious prophet. Thanks for listening to the Dead Authors' Society. Be sure to follow for more content posted several days a week.